Our first guest is the Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania. Please welcome Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. How are you? <laughs> I bet you can whoop every Lieutenant Governor's ass. Every Look, single him? one. <laughs> I'm a lover, not a fighter. Yeah. You are not. I've just never seen a Lieutenant Governor look that scary and in a brick with a brick wall behind him right. like that. <laughs> like and look at those hands. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Um, so you're 34th uh, Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania. Um, and it's interesting because uh, we we all always hear how pivotal uh, in terms of the presidential elections uh, that Pennsylvania is. I, I just why is that? Why is Pennsylvania always one of the bellwether is the bellwether? It, it's, the, it's the electoral prize. Why is that? Yeah, well, I, uh, I always have said that Pennsylvania is going to pick the president. And I think that's in large part because it's a microcosm of America. Uh, it has a very blue right coast and a very blue left coast. And it has islands of blue throughout the middle. But overall, it's got big oceans of red, too, like our country. So yeah. I, I think it's emblematic of our country. And it's going through a lot of the same struggles that we are as a country. So I think if whoever wins Pennsylvania is going to be our next president. I've always said that. Um, what is the, because uh, uh, you say that you have common sense reforms that uh, benefit the middle class, uh, people living in par- poverty and marginalized communities. You know what's weird about that for me is that I never hear people uh, specifically addressing the the, the poverty uh, people, people who are stricken with poverty in our in our in our population in our in our culture. We never talk about that. We talk about the middle class and the wealth, uh, and we say marginalized communities. And I think those are monikers for everything. But I never have heard anybody, uh, you know, at, at your level, uh, really say or do anything that even recognizes, let alone addresses uh, people living in poverty. Sure. Well, uh, I got my start in politics representing a, one of the poorest communities in Pennsylvania, Braddock, Pennsylvania. And it's something that I really dedicated my professional career to is, is addressing a lot of these systemic issues uh, that are plaguing our country as, as a whole. And as a governor, it's confronting a lot of those same very key issues, like the minimum wage. The minimum wage in Pennsylvania is $7.25 an hour. It's outrageous. Um, and there are so many other issues from legalizing marijuana to uh, reducing our state inmates uh, population that it's just fundamentally rebuilding a lot of these communities and that's been the, the professional passion of my life and I'm honored to, to serve as lieutenant governor but um, I still live in the same community Braddock that I was lucky enough to represent as mayor for four terms. What's interesting is uh, you, you, you why would anybody uh, think that anybody living in, in America why would they think it would be okay to make uh, seven dollars an hour why would they think it would be okay to to uh, to to incarcerate large masses of people. Why would that? How is what? What would? How could a society think that those were the answers to our problems? Why would they think that those? Like when I hear people talk arguing about the minimum wage, we had uh, 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 Re- the Reverend Barber on yesterday, and he was talking about uh, poverty. How we could take millions of people out of poverty just by raising the wage minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. That would immediately take people out of poverty. Who would be adverse to that? Like, what is the answer against it? The, the... I, I honestly don't know. I asked, I asked people, it's like, would you want to work for $7.25 an hour? And at no point does anyone ever respond back to me and say, yes, 
I would. Question your friend or neighbor or anyone work for those wages. It's, so it, it really yeah. It's interesting because no one ever talks about that. I think that uh, people in, in America, I think that there has been a war on the poor. I think that they think that there are a lot of poor choices involved. I think that there are a lot of people in America feel like they're responsible for their lot in life and that this is kind of the penance you pay. And I think a lot of people think that same thing about marijuana. I think that they think that, like, that the way they demonize. Now, I dig marijuana, but I think that there's a way that that society connects the, them together as if it, it, there's some kind of deviant behavior or there's some kind of moral morass involved in it. And it's it's really kind of just common sense. Yeah. I, I, well, if you look at if you look at the origins of the whole reefer madness and, and cannabis prohibition, it was steeped in racism. And, and it's it's horrendous. Uh, whites and blacks consume marijuana at roughly the same rates. But arrests are three and a half to four times greater. Pennsylvania every year arrests and charges over twenty thousand of our residents for using marijuana, and it is uh, it's a disgrace, and it further serves to marginalize individuals that are already dealing with a lot of these other systemic issues. It's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. A majority of our state wants to legalize this. And it's one of those things that I keep pushing because there needs to be a lot of reinvestment with those tax revenues back into the very communities that were harmed by prohibition. Now you're 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 very uh, you you're very popular. I guess your governor is very popular. I think that, or popular as you can be when you're a politician yeah. in these times. Um, but uh, it, what's interesting is that I think that as important as Pennsylvania is. Uh, that the Biden ticket has to have a large turnout in the urban centers. They have to have Philadelphia, which means that a large percentage of, of black men and women, both young and old, are going to have to turn out. And we know that at least on one part of it, uh, the, 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 there seems to be a disconnect between um, the Democratic message and black men. Um, uh, that Trump has, to some degree, found a way to resonate with a pretty good percentage of them um, what do you say to them? Because uh, they hold the key to what happens. I mean, if they uh, turn out in large numbers and, and or don't turn out in large numbers, it's going to affect uh, really ultimately the rest of the country. And they are, they're, they're really kind of calling out for a level of specificity that I don't know I've heard uh, through this cycle. So uh, you as a representative of Pennsylvania, what would you say to them? Well, I, I, would, say, I would say to, to anyone, uh, I don't know if I necessarily can speak to your exact experience because uh, it's, it's a very diverse and big state here in Pennsylvania. But what I can say uh, is fundamentally, what were the last four years like? Were they better or were they worse? Do you enjoy the chaos and the turn and the nonstop kind of division? Or would you like to chart a different path? If Joe Biden wasn't your first pick in the primary or isn't someone that you may find energizing, I would just simply suggest that that a lot of good things can happen in Pennsylvania if Joe Biden wins that are important to that community. And also, if we're able to flip our state house and state senator in Pennsylvania, then a lot of really great changes could happen, like raising the minimum wage, like legalizing marijuana, like readjusting our state inmate population. You know, we have the largest number of adults doing life without parole, second only to Florida. 
a lot of these things really need to fundamentally change in Pennsylvania. So this election truly is of enormous consequence. So if, the, if, if, if Biden gets in, you get to get high and have the money to do it. You're like, it's, all, it's pretty, it's pretty. Uh, Education, uh, uh, Pennsylvania education. Um, I think that that's a huge issue. I think that the educational disparity is noticeable all over the country, and I don't think any any states any different. Um, and where 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 are you at in education? Because I think uh, the way that we we have, I think we have to be more innovative. I think we have to find different ways to reach people where they are. But I think that that the uh, education you no know, system as it's set up is very kind of stayed and stoic and doesn't really reach a lot of people, particularly with people with different experiences. W- what do you say to address those kinds of issues? Well, I, I, I really kind of pioneered the phrase of you shouldn't let the zip car, your zip code determine your destiny. In fact, uh, 15 years ago, I, I got my community zip code tattooed right on my arm after I, after I won my uh, first election. And I actually got my start working in this community, helping young people get their GED. You know, first and foremost, we have a crisis with adult learners. Uh, if you look at some of the dropout rates, a lot of these school districts are, uh, they're, they're troubled. And, and statistically, the outcomes of those that are not able to finish high school for whatever reason are dire. And there is not enough of a bridge or a ladder for adult learners to earn their GED, um, you know, my, the programming that I established helped over a thousand young people, almost exclusively of color, earn their GEDs, and that opens up an entire array of opportunities at, at down the road. And I think that experience is scalable, and it's, it's critical in Pennsylvania as well, too, because I don't believe we do enough for our adult learners. And the adult learners are individuals that are struggling in our school districts right now uh, for whatever reason, and I think a lot of that the reason they don't finish school is is that their home life is chaotic, and that is underpinned by a lack of a quality access to health care, lack to a quality job when you're making 7 or $8 or $9 an hour. And it, it's incredibly difficult. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we in our, our, our state have to continually reinvest more in our education, but also help the families and the parents of those students, too to create, to allow them to a, a more stable home life that, that can support those educational pursuits as, as a whole. And what about uh, the the number in terms of uh, maternal mortality rate in Pennsylvania? Uh, I do know that there is a huge disparity between the African-American community as far as women specifically uh, and the counterparts uh, during pregnancy and the, the lack of proper health care and the fact that black women die, you know, sometimes five times, two to five times more than their white counterparts. What are you guys doing to answer that? Well, I'll tell you, the city of Pittsburgh is constantly named one of the most livable cities in in America. And and there's a lot of great things about Pittsburgh, but for for black men and women, it 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 is not that for sure. And you mentioned mortality rates there. Uh, again, some of those mortality rates approach uh, third world countries and some of these mortality rates, it's, it's, it's abysmal and it's, it's appalling. And the, the governor has consistently sought to reinvent and increase the investment in a lot of these communities for, for healthcare dollars. But quite often we are stopped at, at, at every corner with 
uh, a Republican-controlled legislature. And now, with the uh, uh, ascension of Amy Barrett to the mm. Supreme Court, uh, Obamacare is going to be on the docket uh, almost ex- uh, immediately. It's going to create further drawbacks for health care for not only uh, the state of Pennsylvania, but specifically uh, the mortality rate of, of black mothers. It's, it's, you, you, you really are right when you say uh, that uh, 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 Pennsylvania specifically is reflective of a lot of the country. You have uh, a dependence on oil and natural gas. Uh, you have technology in a lot of the sectors. Uh, and uh, the sustainable fuels, the sustainable energy argument. So it is, uh, it is uh, these, this confluence of things because we, we we know that 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 oil and gas is is not as clean and as environment friendly friendly, but it is a, a source of income. So you have that that's a, a pretty consistent source of income. So how do you, how do you navigate that that? Uh, that that kind of diversity is 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 technology is 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 sustainable uh, energy. It is it is the oil and gas industry. How do you, how do you manage? How do you navigate that? That's that's a fantastic question, and that really strikes at the heart of one of the key things that the governor and I wanted to establish here in Pennsylvania, and that is a severance tax on natural gas that is extracted in our Commonwealth, and it's a small tax. And of all the states where hydraulic fracturing occurs. We are the only state that doesn't have an excise tax. And that modest tax over the next 20 years would generate almost $5 billion that we would very much like to reinvest in communities that need some of the assistance that we're talking about today, build up our infrastructure, help develop our clean energy uh, industries, and rebuild our communities, broadband, whether it's in, in urban areas or in rural areas and all kinds of infrastructure projects and jobs as well, too. But once again, we have a Republican-controlled legislature that doesn't permit those votes to come up for a vote. We would have the vote if they just ran the bill. So realizing that we have an asset in our natural gas reserves, realizing that the climate crisis is real, transitioning through a 20- to 25-year window to harvest those revenues, reinvest them in our commonwealth in areas that we desperately need, and as we move towards a green energy future that is much more sustainable and reflective of the climate situation that we find ourselves here in in, the, in this country and in the world. Why why are so people people so because that that seems very you know what it, it it is the these all seem like they don't seem like radical approaches to me they seem like very common sense approaches. Why do things like progressive if you say <laughs> fair progressive and just in green energy, you are yeah. you are that's heresy to a lot of people, and I just don't understand because we know what it does to the environment. For instance, what 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 the oil and natural gas. Although there are a lot of great jobs, and they, I don't care how clean you try to do it, it is it is dirtier than other kinds of fuels, and it has an environmental impact, and usually on and, and people who either work or live close to those areas. Uh, and when you address those issues, all people talk about or think about is jobs and, or, and never really kind of that, that this is, there's a, there, there are a finite number of, of, of barrels of oil. There's a finite number of, of there's, a, there's only so much coal and so much natural gas. So we're going to have to do these things anyway. Uh, and, and addressing the issues of the lowest among us uh, and, and all these uh, disparate issues. Why do we, why does it seem like heresy to people? The way I the way I, I said it to, to, to folks is that Republicans have to get honest about uh, 
about our climate. And Democrats have to reconcile and get and get honest about our energy needs. And right now, around 60% of our electricity is generated through natural gas. And we all agree, my governor agrees, I agree, that climate change is real. And we need to transition away from fossil fuels to produce as much green energy as we possibly can. And we need to benefit the most number of Pennsylvanians uh, as possible doing that. And that's why we were thwarted by our attempt to just do what every other, you know, Texas receives hundreds of millions of dollars a year in extraction taxes that they reinvest in their infrastructure. Um, this isn't a radical. To your point, none of this stuff is radical. It's all common sense. We all can move to a collectively green future. We can all acknowledge that we have a power grid that needs that needs electricity. And right now we are transitioning to a fuel from coal to natural gas. And then transitioning from natural gas as we draw down on that to create more cleaner renewable energy, which of course will produce its own uh, abundance of jobs as well too. It's 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 not it doesn't have to be a, a war against one or the other. I think it just should be like a collective bipartisan vision. But as you know, yeah. that's getting harder and harder these days to just have that kind of a conversation. They, well, they, they they do. And to that point, I was uh, of course I was taken by the news. I know that you're. Uh, a wife uh, was was called a racial epithet in an area. Uh, the the thing that that seemed both familiar and sad to me was how safe initially she must have felt going to an area she had been to all the time, and then to be uh, verbally assaulted like that because of somebody's political mindset or or, or racial mindset. I, how is it that you, you that we can? navigate all those areas when when there are people um, who feel uh that 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 are that base and they feel like that is the way to exp- that adults should express themselves well my, my my wife uh was a dreamer so she had uh, she grew accustomed to, to you know, kind of her, her mother always said you got to be invisible because there's always that constant fear oh. of, of being discovered and, and being treated as an, another uh, but uh, but I also and I think my wife well my wife and I were adamant that we didn't want any charges pressed against this woman or whatever because uh, I, I think the only way you can respond to something like that is through you know love or forgiveness or or hope that this woman gets gets some some help because it's just not a, a sustainable way for our society to continue. But I'm also encouraged by the massive amount of outs uh, of, of uh, outpouring of support. That she received from all corners of the of the world, actually, a- a- after that the video went viral. But it also it demonstrates that we have a lot of work to do as as a country, and it demonstrates that these instances happen all over. I mean, very you know, very rarely does a week go by where there's not another viral video. I saw one. Um, uh, it was involving a real estate agent in Arizona. It's so. it's interesting because we right now are you right now are faced with a crisis in Philadelphia where a young black man was shot by the police a young man who from all accounts uh, had was having under mental duress um, and I think that the constant fear of of a lot of people black people in this country is that these things uh, that shouldn't result in a death sentence often do um, that we are often killed in circumstances like one of the, the the people most likely to have a negative impact with police officers are people who are mentally or emotionally disturbed 
or mentally handicapped or emotionally handicapped in some kind of way. And then people of color. So I don't think it's okay for us as a society to accept that as the norm. There obviously needs to be something that we can do to mitigate these kinds of circumstances because they, they seem to happen far too often for us not to believe that there is some kind of systematic element uh, to it. What do you say uh, to those issues? Police reform, to, it, nobody does everything right, and virtually every other industry has some level of accountability. They have some checks and balances. And it, 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 to the degree, those things are mostly handled in-house by police departments or municipalities. And I think that there's a problem. But how do we handle those situations? You're in, you're, you're in a city, a, a big state uh, with uh, urban cities, and, and these things kind of replicate themselves over and over again. Well, I, I think one of the things that we need to uh, do in our state uh, is redefine use of force standards and there's uh, there's a bill currently that is uh, not being taken up by our uh, legislature that would redefine those standards in, in a way that makes it, that a deadly use of force and an escalation like that happened uh, just recently in Philadelphia much less likely to happen that this this shooting death of an individual that uh, was described as having uh, some mental health challenges and issues in the past replicates an incident that happened uh, recently in Lancaster where uh, it was a domestic call and the individual had a knife and the, the police officer shot him. And it's clear that these kind of systemic reforms uh, to our policing standards is critical. I was in charge of a police department for 14 years while I was mayor. And uh, in, imposing a community-based policing uh, protocol was was mandatory, and we reduced the number of violent instances. We went five and a half years without the loss of life through violence in our community, while doing it without any kinds of police complaints or uh, issues. Certainly, nothing like what happened uh, in Lancaster or Philadelphia recently. And I think it, I think it can be done, uh, but we we need to realize that there needs to be a reboot and a reckoning and some common sense legislation needs to be taken up that whose end goal is to realize that we need both the police and we need the community buy-in so everybody can feel more collectively safe and our communities can be healthier uh, in the final uh, tally. Hey, uh, thank you, uh, Lieutenant Governor. It, it's a pleasure talking to you. And you're the scariest Lieutenant Governor I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you could just tell me that I'm doing it, you'll beat the shit out of him. <laughs> But I want to I, I want to thank you. I'm, uh, uh, you know, I, little starstruck too. I, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> so, uh, so it's an honor to be on your show. Thank, thank you, man. Thank you so much. And uh, I might look scary, but uh, I'm actually a nice guy. But uh, nevertheless, thank you for. for thank you, me. man. Hey, look, look. I, I really hope that people hear your message because it's not as frightening. It, it only listen the way we've been doing things. Just nationally, particularly nationally, is not sustainable. We can't keep doing these things. We can't keep having uh, these large numbers of poor people, these people that are not getting education or uh, not getting the Medicare they need, or not be, being slain. We can't. We, we they're, they're reasonable people should be able to come up with reasonable solutions. I think that, and I think you embody that, man. And, That's why, and th thank you for saying that. That means, that means a great deal. And, and once again, thank you. So and good much. luck to thank you. Thank you good so luck much. To you. Give, see, you, see give you my best to your wife as well. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.
Welcome back to D.L. Hughley Uncut. Our next guest is a jazz musician, trumpeter, composer, band leader, advocate for the arts, and an educator. His new album, The Ever Funky Lowdown, is out right now. Welcome, please, Wynton Marcellus. It is uh, It okay. is, is an honor to have you. I'm glad we ain't got to put all that on the Chiron. Jesus Christ, <laughs> you, you do a lot. You do a lot. Well. It's really an honor to have you on the show. Man, it's my pleasure. It's my honor. Thank y'all for having me. And that is a beautiful place you have beautiful. there. I, I should have picked up a horn a long time ago. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, and the first thing I'd like to, uh, to is offer our condolences. I am so sorry about losing your dad in April uh, a couple of years ago. That happened to me, so I understand that's that's a rough thing. It, music is your family business, right? Yes, sir. My, my, my dad is a musician. My mom was a singer. And uh, four, of my, four of my six brothers played music. So y'all like wow. the y'all like the the, the uh, Wayans brothers, but with horns. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a little weird, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Talk about it. Talk about it. Um, you uh talk about how important art is, uh, in terms uh, in terms of being able to decipher. Like your new album is uh, is uh, the uh, funky lowdown. Tell me tell me a little bit about that. Well, Ever Funky is a, is a, is a satirical spoken piece. It features my homeboy, Wendell Pierce, as Mr. Game. Yeah. Ooh. And it, it's a blueprint for people to help us rise above the propaganda and the stuff that, that hustles us. And, you know, it, it, the piece encourages us to define ourselves in terms of our largest community and, and, and encourages us to have more meaningful engagement with it. Like, we don't know who somebody is. My dad used to always tell me, man, don't tell me what somebody is. Tell me who they are. Right. And uh, the music satirizes things. So the music is celebratory, even though it's all about messing over people. Right. And it, uh, the piece encourages us to see in ironic detail how foolish a lot of this stuff is and encourage us to fight uh, for a certain type of unity and awareness of what's going on. You know, it's very interesting. You said uh, uh, I think art is important, too. And a satirical piece uh, in this time is probably uh, more difficult for people to digest because we've lost our sense of satire. Our, we've lost, uh, to a great degree, our sense of irony. Like, everything has to be so literal these days. I don't think people get it. What's going on is satire. Right. So that's what makes it hard to satirize. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you, you can't believe it. I'll do the stuff that's funny. You just <laughs> take us on a musical journey. They do what? <laughs> it is. It is satire. It is, and, and it's hard. It's hard it to is. believe you, you're not seeing anything. Um, why has uh, art is uh, we? I, I believe art is important. Obviously, you do, but but it doesn't seem like we, we we as a country give a value to it. Like a lot of times when programs are cut, it is the arts uh, who people think uh, is dispensable. You can't you uh, you you don't need them. And I think it has cost us a lot. I think socially it's cost a lot. I think our ability to interact with each other, to your point, is it's cost a lot. Because art is much more important than just making people feel good. It's about helping them see things and be able to, 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 to use your phrase, decode and decipher things. Right. Well, you know, because art is a, it, it inspires inner growth, like you're saying. It, it inspires contemplation and discernment. It helps you to, to tell the difference between two things that seem to be the same, but they're not. Um, you know, it puts you in touch with the mythic substance of human history. It's the story of human beings, and it teaches you how to think and perceive symbolically. Now, that's very powerful. So art transforms your, your perspective, and it helps you to develop your attention span. It also teaches you delayed gratification. 
Mm. Now, if I want you to buy something, man, I don't. I want you to get it right now. I want to sell it to you in a group. I want to have a lot of it. Art takes time. An artist is dealing with consciousness. An artist is a creator, a recreator, and it is recreation. So, you know, the more a community invests in arts and in arts education, they're more likely to be enlightened, informed, and they're more likely to be friendly to strangers and even able to deal with enemies. So, you know, a relationship with the art sharpens your judgment and it influences your personal decision-making and the decision-making of a community. Now, if you're trying to take people's money and con them, why in the world would you want them to come into contact with art? Right, exactly. Mm. You just, you just, uh, 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 you just articulate the schoolboy's point. Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, you, you don't know. need art. We yeah. don't need art. Yeah, it makes no sense. The other thing yeah. too, though, for especially for young kids who are coming up, you know, obviously, like we just, you know, DL just said, you know, it's one of the first programs to get cut and cut in school. When you think about what the country is going through right now, in regards to you know this administration, then on top of that, COVID, and the kids have missed out so much. A lot of art helps kids and adults with expression. When you're trying to get feelings out, whether it is you're angry, you're upset, and when when you don't have that, or when people look at art as oh that's just silly, it's a waste of time, it's frivolous, you know, I think we do a tremendous disservice to the next generation and and even adults in some cases. Right. Well, adults in a lot of cases because art is a tool for survival. Mm. It lets you know how people dealt with circumstances in the past, and art also speaks to you across the generations and across the epochs. Narrative Life of Frederick Douglass, that's letting you know something. Poems of Walt Whitman, that's telling you something. You know, so, and then when you start to talk about music, music is so abstract, but I want you to to realize that everybody in the country is not bereft of art. When people have means, they have art in their school. Um, And it's part of the whole system of of trying to create a level playing field for everybody, not just for black people. Because poor white people and white people without education, (laughs) believe me, nobody cares about them. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- when you lose that understanding, symbolic understanding of your history and who you are, think about the power that, that hymns had. Think about the Negro spiritual uh, in, in the presence of somebody like Fannie Lou Hamer, which she was singing in the 1960s, mm-hmm. Mahalia Jackson's Enforced to the Civil Rights Movement, and the sound of Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong. These are, these are indispensable tools to help us deal with these times. Now, when you don't have those tools, I'm going to give you something commercial that I got a million of, and I'm just gonna sell it to you and put the shiny suit on it and plug it in and you're gonna buy it. And then with, with black folks, I'm gonna call you all kind of names and say you're an image of yourself. It's always negative, always have you committing crimes, being a fool and acting a fool, and you and you're gonna buy that and you're gonna eat it up. So you know, mm. it's 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 a it's a thing that infects our whole country and in our national life. And one day I hope I, I used to hope when I was younger before I died. I'm not hopeful of that, but I hope that we we wake up to to the fact that there's been great contributions in this country, and we need to know our artistic heritage. I think that that, that that to a large extent, the only way we've ever been heard is artistically. I remember if you if you listen, if you watch, you can't watch a piece about the civil rights uh, 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 marches of the '60s or the strife and turmoil of the '60s or the Viet- of Vietnam and not hear Motown. It's imbued because yeah. it was the it was the first time. I remember talking to an older white man, and he said the first time I ever felt anything except dislike for black people was when I heard Motown. 
Like right. it's, it's it's artists that have kind of guided us. And I remember specifically, I was watching this uh, documentary, and it was this old man who hadn't spoken. I think you showed it to me, but he hadn't spoken forever. And they played his his uh, song from when he grew up, one of his favorite songs, and he sang until they cut it off. I was like, this dude has hadn't spoken, and and that's yeah. the way. In fact, but 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 I think you're right, and I right. think that. A lot of times we have disconnected ourselves or been disconnected for the importance of art in our diaspora, in our story. We don't, we, like, every time I hear us talk about art, it's always in a very retrospective kind of way. Like, it, it doesn't exist right. now. That's right. And it does exist now. There's a lot of creative uh, creative people out here in, in, in many fields, a lot of creative musicians. They come from all over. A lot of creative artists, a lot of creative writers. There's always a lot of creativity and people who are dedicated. It's just a lot of times we don't come into contact with the deepest stuff or the stuff that has the most fire or that is of the best, the most value, because this stuff, you have to be educated in it. I grew up going to jazz clubs. Man, I hated the music they were playing. So I grew up in the Motown era, in the funk era of the 70s, and that's what we were playing. I would go to my daddy and them's gig. It'd be two or three people. And I'd be like, man, what <laughs> in the world is y'all playing? You know, what in the world are y'all playing and why are y'all playing? Right. Even my mama would make me laugh. She'd say, child... I brought my girlfriends to hear your daddy before we was married, and they sat up in the club and they played one solo for 30 minutes, and the next song was 20 minutes. <laughs> he said, "My girl looked at me and said, girl, you must really love him.' <laughs> it, it's like you have to be you have to be taught to to to, to not just with the music, uh, you know, because the music is, is is such a deeply spiritual thing. With it has so much consciousness in it, but any art to be able to understand the development, theme, and, and variation." What we talking about? What is our mythology? And you know, we we so far away from it now, but I still believe we're gonna come to it because there's so much of it, and so much of it is great. We just don't know none of it. A lot of times people ask me, "Man, what's gonna be the next thing in jazz?" I say, "People gonna listen to it." <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. hey man, stop with the jokes, man. Yeah, I need my job. <laughs> Jesus Christ, put these more I'm gonna come get some lessons from you. <laughs> Oh wow! Uh, the Lincoln Center, uh, jazz at the Lincoln Center. I actually, I actually attended uh, the, the performance at the Lincoln Center, uh, mm -hmm. and and you you are running their arts program, right? You were in, you're in charge of that. Well, yeah, we jazz at jazz at Lincoln Center. Um, yes. uh, do do because you said even your father who was one of the greats. You went to go see him, and you're like, ah, oh, this is I don't want to hear this. How how do, uh, then how do you get kids to appreciate it if it's if it's hard to like I only like baseball because my dad liked it. I there are certain things you only like, but they don't have that. They may not have that connection. So how is that you instill that same kind of love in them? Well, that's what teaching is about. That's you have a kid, you don't just turn them loose to say, okay, here you are. What you gonna teach them? So my daddy taught me, and uh, I, you know I've lived really the lessons he gave me was so valuable. And the stuff I learned in those clubs with three and four people, and we talking about segregated South in the 1960s. So you you got to, it's like lowered in the chitlin circuit. But what I what I, I saw, saw an example of integrity, and I saw the way they loved the music of Duke and of Sonny Rollins and Coltrane and Miles. So then when I started to, to come around, I got to my teenage years, I had another type of baseline. And also more importantly, I had a sense of pride because I knew we had had some musicians who were intelligent, and had a depth of training and sophistication and could articulate a point of view that was acute. And it wasn't just the black musicians, you know, because then nobody really, everybody where I'm from was black or white. And my father was one of the only people that knew white people. And that was only because he was a jazz musician. And when I see the musicians, they would hug each other. And you think about the generations before where Benny Goodman dealt with, with, uh, with integrating the American public sphere 
and with, with Norman Grants, with jazz at the Philharmonic, and the way the jazz musicians lived around the world in integration, they didn't accept uh, segregation and being relegated to one thing. You you know what it was amazing. I, I could talk to you uh, all day, and I think you've said some things. I've, I've you've used words I haven't ever <laughs> heard before, <laughs> and you said "daddy" a bunch of times, and I think. That is really who we are. We are all those things. We are scholars, we are poets, and we're fathers, sons. Mm -hmm. And I think right. it's just amazing. Like, it, it's an amazing, uh, uh, like, I always knew that you were just, like, uh, bright beyond this world. But I, I just, you get a different sense of it. And I think that uh, you might have been the teacher I'd have listened to. But not really, not me. Maybe. Tell my students that. Tell my students that. They don't listen to me. <laughs> oh, we ain't either then. What, this, what, what is all this been about? The name of the album again one more time. The Ever Funky Lowdown. <laughs> man. Ever Funky. <laughs> what Indeed. a pleasure, man. Now, what a pleasure. Thank you for joining hey. us, man. I got to say Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, hey, thank man. Thank you all for working. Thank, thank you. Thank you.